opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is, um, for those of you that don't know, my name is Carla Hayes, and I am the convention chair and the second vice president of the American Association of Blind Teachers. So I'm going to say what a good uh, flight attendant would say. If um, if you're not supposed to be in uh, the Statue of Liberty um, presentation of the American Association of Blind Teachers, you're on the wrong plane. You're flying to Boston. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. Anyhow, um, I want to welcome you all. Uh, did you all have a good breakfast? Great. I would like to take this opportunity to thank all the, the wait staff that was with us today. And let's give them a hand. And all the cooks in the kitchen. I was joking with the people at my table and I said, I got up at 4 a.m. or 3 a.m. to cook all this food. But if you believe that one, I have a piece of land to sell somewhere, which I don't, don't believe it. Okay. Um, and before I um, this over to our speaker, I'd like to remind you about AABP, the American Association of Black Teachers. If you would like to join us, our news for an active teacher is 25. Is that right, Donna? Yeah. And for a student, it's still 10. And retired teachers, 25. Anything else? 20. 20. 20. Okay. They, they knock off about a five. Yeah. Okay. All right. Then, um, so, um, and Donna Brown is just is our treasurer, and um, so she's all ready to take your money and take a trip to. Oh, I'm just kidding. Okay, she's ready to take your money or your registration. Uh, and we we are an affiliate of the ACB. We um, have these yearly meetings, whether they be virtually or um, hybrid or in person. And we have other events during the year, like teachers lounge, community calls, and, and um, we have a newsletter that comes out online once a month now, the, the, um, the briefs. And um, so you're welcome to join us. And I just want to remind you of the rest of our convention offerings. First of all, this isn't an offering, but hopefully a lot of you signed up for Boy. It's a great institution of uh, education and help for um, children who are less fortunate and has a great degree. But um, um, <clears throat> two. Tuesday, we are joining with Lua and DRL and a whole bunch of people, and we're going to be doing the Talking Book Narrator program, co-sponsored, and the One Book program, and that all starts on at, at um, one o'clock on um, Tuesday. And on Wednesday, we have, it takes a village, and it's about how to help students in transition and our. It's going to be Nancy Fleurl, and you may have heard her in the She's with the Aska Foundation, and she's going to be talking about uh, about that topic. So that's what we have in store. We, we certainly welcome each of you and hope you will join us for all or some of what's left of the convention. So without any further ado, I am so excited to introduce our speaker. Um, this gentleman really, um, he, he's probably the most well-known historian 
in Nebraska. He's done, um, he can tell you more about the, the historical skits that he does as a speaker and has done. And, and a lot of them are in costume. And, you know, there were just a lot of different topics. But this morning, he's going to speak to us on the Statue of Liberty, the rest of the story, um, you know, the interesting history of the, the Statue of Liberty. And of course, I am talking about Mr. Daryl W. Draper. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Omaha. My name is Daryl Draper. I'm an edutainment speaker for the Omaha Visitors Bureau and Nebraska Humanities Council. What's an ed edutainment speaker? I provide educational programs in what I hope is going to be an entertaining way. Well, I'll let you be the judge of that. Uh, today is July 2nd. Independence Day. Hooray for the red, white, and blue. Da 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 da. Wait, no, you're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. July 4th is Independence Day, right? Well, let me assure you that on July 2nd, 1776, the Continental Congress passed a resolution to adopt the Declaration of Independence. President to be John Adams wrote a letter to his wife, Abigail Adams, says, July 2nd should be a day celebrated by all future generations with parades, festivities, uh, bells ringing, and uh, pyrotechnic displays. And if you stick your head outside uh, tonight, you'll hear there's going to be pyrotechnic displays going on all night. Now, I don't think there's much uh, harm in under those circumstances of celebrating a little bit early. But what if you celebrated July 4th? 10 years and four months late. That wouldn't be good, right? Well, that happened, and I'm going to tell you how it happened. The program title is The Statue of Liberty, The Amazing Rest of the Story. But for this story, we have to go back in time 155 years. So hold on to your chairs here. We're going to go way back in time to 1867. Now we're going to jump across the Atlantic Ocean to Paris, France. You always wanted to go to Paris, right? Where we landed at a banquet on July 14th, Bastille Day in Paris, France. Bastille Day, July 14th, is, is their equivalent of Independence Day. There's two friends sitting next door to, uh, next to, uh, to each other at a table. Uh, one is very happy, one is very sad. This one is Frederick August Bartholdi. He is sad because he's an artist and a sculptor and he's just had a major setback. He was commissioned by the ruler of Egypt to design a lighthouse statue that was going to be colossal in scope because the upcoming completion of the Suez Canal was, was pending and that was the colossal achievement. So when he heard those words colossal, he thought, of the Colossus of Rhodes, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, the Colossus of Rhodes was a statue of the Greek god Helios, 105 feet tall. It was built on the island of Rhodes at, at the city harbor of Rhodes. And it came about because the Macedonians tried to invade Rhodes and they were wiped out on the beaches and the Rhodes people gathered up all their spears and shields and, and, and swords and beat them into thin sheets of brass, wrapped the brass around an iron framework and created this tallest statue in the world, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
pardon me, this was 250 years before the birth of Christ. And that statue stood for 50 years. Now, no one ever drew a picture of it from real life, but 1,700 years after the fact, some artists painted the picture uh, based upon written descriptions, and they pictured the, uh, the sun god Helios standing with one foot on one side of the harbor and the other foot on the other side of the harbor, sort of conquering limbs astride from land to land. And he had a, a, a crown of spikes representing rays of sunlight. This statue stood for 52 years until a, a earthquake knocked it down, and it became the trademark for the city and island of Rhodes, so much so that people called them the Colossians. In fact, when St. Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians in the New Testament, he was writing to the people that lived on the shores of southern Turkey uh, who were governed by the Colossians of, of Rhodes. While using this as an inspiration, Bartholdi drew a sketch of an Egyptian peasant woman wearing a long robe, holding a lamp in her outstretched hand toward the east, titled Egypt, Giving Light to Asia. Well, as luck would have it, Egypt was broke by the time the Suez Canal was uh, getting near finished. The Suez Canal Company was broke, so they both told him that we uh, can't afford to build your elaborate statue lighthouse. So Bartholdi goes back to France with his tale of woe between his legs, and he's telling this sad story to his friend there at the banquet. His friend is the happy one. His name is Edouard René de Laboulay. He's a lawyer and an abolitionist, an anti-slavery person. In fact, he is the president of the French Anti-Slavery Society. And he is happy because in 1865, the United States won the Civil War. And in July of 1865, they passed the 13th Amendment, freeing all the slaves. And Edward de Laboulaye said that we ought to give a grand colossal monument to the Americans to commemorate being the last nation to finally do away with this terrible institution called slavery. And for two years, he's been racking his brain, trying to figure out something colossal enough to give the Americans. And then Bartoli is telling him about the statue. He says, oh, a lighthouse statue. That'd be wonderful. He says, let me see the drawing again. Uh, can you modify that uh, Egyptian woman into Libertas, the Roman goddess of liberty? Well, of course he can do that. He's an artist. That's what he does for a living. Erase, 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 and redraw. And based upon depictions on Roman coins showing Libertas as a woman holding a sword in her upstretched right hand and holding a bundle of broken chains and shackles in her left hand symbolizing freedom from slavery, he draws this out on paper. Delabolade looks at it and says, I like that, but this is going to be a lighthouse, so let's get rid of the sword, put a torch in her right hand, and in her left hand, let's drop the chains down by her feet. And in her left hand, put a tablet with the engraving July 4th, 1776 in Roman numerals. Because I intend to give this gift to the Americans on their 100-year anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. De Lavallee puts the torch in her hand, drops the uh, 
the chains down, puts the tablet with July 4, 1776. De Lavalle looks at it and says, magnifique. Let's see if the French government will finance this. So they go to Napoleon III. He is the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte. He's been elected president of France. And he likes the idea. He says, you know, we owe uh, the Americans a great deal of gratitude because if it wasn't for their Revolutionary War, we might not have had our French Revolution in 1789 where we got rid of that worthless king, Louis XVI, and his spendthrift wife, Marie Antoinette. The French government will, will provide 75% of the funding for the statue. You'll have to get private donors to provide the other 25% of the funding. The Americans will have to provide the land to put it on, and they'll have to build a pedestal to install it on. Easy peasy. Americans have lots of land, and goodness knows they've got lots of natural resources to build a pedestal. Shouldn't be any problem. So they lay the groundwork for building the statue. Takes two years to make all the preparation to find a warehouse big enough to build it, to order all the copper sheets, and to find the craftsmen willing to work on it. So in 1869, two years later, De Labole and Bartholdi get on a steamship, sail across the Atlantic Ocean to Washington, D.C., and meet with the President of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant, who was instrumental in winning the Civil War. And now he's president, and he likes the idea, but he says, I'm president of the United States, but I am not in charge of lighthouses. Lighthouses are the, the, under the supervision of the Secretary of War, William Belknap. So they bring in William Belknap, a former Union general. He looks for the drawing. And he says, oh, that's very beautiful, very artistic. But the fact of the matter is we have all the lighthouses we need where we need them. And right now my budget is strapped because I've got federal troops maintaining order down the south and I got cavalry out fighting Indians out west. I don't have money in my budget to build this lighthouse. But I tell you what, the individual states, they have the uh, bank accounts and the authority to put up lighthouses anywhere they want. Talk to the individual states. I suggest you start with Pennsylvania. So Ed and Fred get on a train, check it, check it, check it up to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They posed the idea to the town fathers of Philadelphia, and they said, oh, what a wonderful thing. You know, we're going to have a big hoop-de-doo on July 4th, 1876, the 100-year anniversary. Did you know that the Declaration of Independence was signed here in Philadelphia? Well, of course, they knew that. They weren't stupid. That's why they were there in Philadelphia. He says, but the fact of the matter is... We are a seaport, but only after you sail 125 miles up the Delaware River to reach Philadelphia. This gigantic statue, you say it's going to be 305 feet tall. This should be on the Atlantic coast. You know what? New York City, that's our biggest harbor, our busiest harbor, our wealthiest harbor. I'll bet they would love this idea. So back on the train, check it, check it, check it, up to New York City, and they pose the idea to people of New York City. Oh, what a splendid statue. Oh, that would be so spectacular right in our harbor. But New York City doesn't have enough money to fund this. But the New York State Legislature does. Talk to them. I'm sure they'll buy into the idea. So Ed and Fred jump on a train, chug -a -chug -a -chug, up to Albany, pitch the idea to the New York State Assembly and the Senate. 55% of them like the idea. They write up a bill authorizing $50,000, today's equivalent of $5 million, for the 
purchase of land and for the building of the pedestal to put the statue on. It gets sent to the governor for final approval and buzz. The governor vetoes the bill. He says, yes, yeah, so New York has a lot of land, but not so much in New York Harbor. There, we're, we're pushing rocks and landfill into the Hudson River to create artificial land so that we can build more infrastructure to support our harbor. But I tell you what, down in New York City, we have lots of millionaires who spend tens of thousands of dollars on artwork. Go to them, and they I'm sure they will fund your statue. So back on the train, check it, check it, check it, check it, down to New York City. And Delabole, who speaks a little bit better English than Bartoldi, he starts going down the list of New York millionaires. But each one of them tells him the same thing. Yes, I spent tens of thousands of dollars on artwork, but I hang that artwork on the walls of my mansion or I display it on the lawn of my estate. I'm not paying for a public artwork that might be miles from my estate. Sorry. Meanwhile, Bartoldi is down on the waterfront looking for a place to put the statue. He looks out in the middle of the harbor and there's an island out there. He asks a passerby, says, hey, what's that little island out there in the middle of the harbor? He says, oh, that's Bedloe Island. That's home of Fort Wood, an Army Coastal Defense Artillery Fortress. Uh, but that's not in New York. That's half a mile across the line in the state of New Jersey. You have to talk to them about that. So Ed and Fred get on a ferry boat, go over across the, the Hudson River to New Jersey, talk to them. He says, oh, yes, Bedloe Island and its sister, uh, Ellis Island. Ellis Island is the supply depot for, for Bedloe Island and Fort Wood. Um, that's an army fort that's been abandoned, but we don't own that. That's owned by the federal government. You have to talk to the Secretary of War about that. Someone please shoot me in the head. Back, back on the train, chugga, chugga, chugga down to, to Washington, D.C. Talk to William Belknap again. William Belknap says, yeah, Fort Wood is obsolete. We don't use it anymore, but we've held on to the, the ownership of the land just in case we might need it in an emergency. But uh, talk to the general of the army, and whatever he says, I'll go along with it. So they hunt down General William Tecumseh Sherman, general of the United States Army. He was also second in command during the Civil War. Big hero in the North. Down south, he's considered a war criminal, a terrorist, and accused of being responsible for burning down the city of Atlanta. Today, there are no schools in the former Confederate states named William Tecumseh Sherman High School. Well, they're talking to Sherman, and they said, they said, can we use the island? He said, well, we don't need Bedloe Island anymore. Fort Wood's obsolete. If you want to build your statue there, you can build it, no charge. Uh, we'll maintain ownership of the land, but Fort Wood has a bunch of stone buildings and stone wall fortifications. If you want to disassemble those stone buildings and stone walls to use them as building material for your pedestal, have at it. Bingo! This is the best news that they have had in the five years that they've been in America. So they said, let's go take a look at this Bedloe Island. They get on a train, check it, check it, check it, up to New Jersey, take a boat over to Bedloe Island. They're walking around and says, oh, my gosh, look look how perfect this would be for the statue. Uh, you can see it from the Jersey shore. You can see it from the New York shore, from Brooklyn. And we got all this stone here. Now that we have the land and, and part of the uh, building materials, I'm sure New York City 
will provide funding for the statue. So you go talk to the town fathers of New York City, and they said, Bedloe Island? That's New Jersey. We're not going to fund a statue you're building in New Jersey. New Jersey needs to fund that. So back in a boat, across the river to New Jersey, and people in New Jersey says, we don't need a lighthouse there. We already got lighthouses where we want them. And that land, although it's inside New Jersey border, it's owned by the federal government. If the federal government wants a lighthouse there, the federal government should pay for a lighthouse to be put there. Well, it's now 1874, and it's pretty obvious that the Statue of Liberty is not going to be completed by July 4th, 1876, their target date. So they said, let's go see how their statue is coming. So they get on a ship, sail back to Paris, and the statue is only about 60% complete back in Paris. You see, that 25% funding that's supposed to come from private donations hasn't been coming in all that well. Uh, but the arm is done. And Bartoldi gets an idea. He loads the arm onto a ship, sails back across the, United, uh, the, the Atlantic Ocean of the United States, and installs the arm of the, of the Statue of Liberty, 42 feet tall, in a park in Philadelphia in time for the 4th of July 100-year anniversary. And tens of thousands of people come to Philadelphia to celebrate the Independence Day. And for 50 cents... They can enter the arm, crawl up the 42-foot ladder, and stand on the viewing balcony that surrounds the torch. And while they're up there, they can get their photograph taken for another 50 cents. And when they come back down out of the arm, they can buy a little 14-inch tall statuette of the Statue of Liberty for 25 cents, made out of terracotta, flower pot material. Or for a dollar, they can get a poured brass uh, figurine of the Statue of Liberty, which has a serial number on it to make it a collector's item. If any of you have a, a brass a figurine of the, the Statue of Liberty up in your attic someplace, they're worth a lot of money. Give it to me. I'll sell it for you, and we'll split the money 50-50. Okay. 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 So money is rolling in from the photographs, the, 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 the armed statue tours. And finally, the crowds start to dwindle away after 4th of July. You know, the the big hoop-de-doo is over. So he takes his arm and he moves it across to New York City, installs it in Madison Square Park, and charges New Yorkers 50 cents to crawl up the ladder, 50 cents to have their photograph taken, 25 cents for a clay figurine, and $1 for a brass figurine. Money is now adequate to start work. He hires labor, masons, craftsmen, laborers. And then no one comes to the arm anymore. You know, that's pretty hot in August, and uh, getting inside a, a copper uh, arm is about 110 degrees in there. Nobody wants to do that anymore. The money stops coming in, and work stops. The workers have to be laid off. So Bartoldi has been talking to a lot of people that are, seem to be pretty enthusiastic about the statue. He organizes them into the Statue of Liberty Pedestal Society with a mission to raise funds for the building of the pedestal. And all the big wig socialites of New York participate in this, and, and they hold fundraising events like concerts and, and banquets and, and uh, sell 
uh, posters of the Statue of Liberty, what it'll look like when it's completed. And the president of the foundation says, hey, I know an idea. We have a world famous poet here in New York City. Her name is Emma Lazarus. Let's go talk to her and see if she'd be willing to donate a poem written about the Statue of Liberty that we could sell at auction. Well, he goes and pays a call on Emma Lazarus, and Emma Lazarus says, well, you have your nerve. You want me to uh, donate a poem to help fund a statue that the federal government didn't want, the state of New York didn't want, and it's a statue of liberty, of freedom? Do you realize that I am a Jew? She's the unmarried daughter of a, of a wealthy Jewish businessman in New York. She says, do you know that as a Jew, I cannot go to a New York hotel and check in because they won't admit Jews? Do you know that my family can't go and buy a, a house in a Christian neighborhood because they will not sell to a Jew? Do you know my Jewish friends cannot go and get a job with a Christian businessman because he won't hire Jews? And you want me to contribute to a, a statue dedicated to liberty and freedom, I won't participate in that hypocrisy. No, thank you, sir. Good day. So he goes back to the society and says, well, Emma Lazarus is pretty upset about all the anti-Semitism in New York City. She says she's not going to write a poem. That's when Constance Carey Harrison raises her hand. You might not have ever heard of Constance Carey Harrison, but have you ever heard of Betsy Ross? How many people have heard of Betsy Ross? Betsy Ross, according to American legend, sewed the first flag for George Washington. That, that might be doubtful, but anyway, that's the legend, and, and they, they have a lot of tourism at Betsy Ross's home in Philadelphia. Constance Carey Harrison was a Southern belle born in Mississippi, raised in Virginia, and she was the Betsy Ross of the Confederacy. She and her cousins sewed four of the first Confederate battle flags, the Stars and Bars, the flag that has now become pretty notorious as indicating racism or, or being a symbol for the Ku Klux Klan. She and her cousins showed up four of these flags, presented them to Confederate generals, and we know that for a fact because she embroidered her name on the border of the flag, and one of those flags survived the Civil War, is in a museum today with her name still embroidered on the edge of the flag. So he says, let me try, because after the war, she went to uh, live in London. It wasn't safe for a good-looking uh, Southern girl to stay in Virginia. And when she was in London, she met a, a successful New York businessman named Harrison. They got engaged. She went back to New York City, married him, and became one of the leading socialites of New York City. She wrote plays and authored books. So she traveled in the same literary circles as Emma Lazarus. Emma Lazarus was a close friend of hers. Let me talk to Emma, she said. Goes and pays a call on Emma and says, Emma, isn't it true that you are the founder of the Hebrew Technical Institute, a school to teach uh, Jewish refugees and, and immigrants trade skills so they can get a job? Yes, that's true. So isn't it true that you're a volunteer with the Hebrew Aid Society, a charity that provides temporary lodging and English as a second language training for Jewish immigrants and refugees? Yes, that's true. And isn't it true that you use your father's business connections to find jobs for Jewish immigrants and refugees? 
Yes, that's true too. She says, well, Emma, the reason that we have Jewish immigrants and refugees is their native countries have passed discriminatory laws where they burned down the, their houses, confiscated their land, their livestock, and ran them out of the country. When they come to America, the first thing they will see is the Statue of Liberty. It will guarantee them that our American Constitution prohibits discriminating against people because of their religion. The government will not take away your house. The government will not treat you any differently than any other uh, religion because it's in the Constitution that we cannot do that. So uh, when you put it that way, I'll, I'll write a poem. So she writes a poem that sold at auction, but still the money's just not enough. That's when the spotlight shines on Joseph Pulitzer. How many people have heard of the Pulitzer Prize? Hey, Joseph Pulitzer was a Hungarian Jewish immigrant. Um, his family was very well-to-do in Hungary. And then the, the government passed some laws that put the family out of business and they sank into poverty. They were making like $10 a year on what they could sell and what, what they could do for odd jobs. But one day, two Americans show up in their village and they are recruiters for the United States Army for the Civil War. And they said, if you will sign up to be a soldier in the Union for the Civil War, we'll pay you a $200 enlistment bonus and provide you free transportation to the United States and then pay you a salary of $5 a month for every month that, that you're a soldier. Well, that sounded pretty good. So they give him the tickets. He signs his name. He gets on a steamship, comes across to New York City. He steps off the ship. And there, he's met there on the pier by the recruiters. And he said, well, welcome to America. He says, yes, uh, thank you. Uh, where, where's my $200? He says, oh, right. We have it right here for you, $200. Let's see, minus the $175 uh, ship ticket. And minus our $20 commission for recruiting you, that leaves you $5. Here's your $5. Here's your boots. Here's your rifle. You're in the United States Army. Well, fortunately, he got there in 1864. And the, the war only lasted about 15 months after he got there. And he was discharged and given his discharge pay of $5. That wasn't even enough money to live on for a month in New York City. But they said, you know what? Out West, they have a law called the Homestead Act. You can go out West and stake out 160 acres of land and 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 for $18 filing fee, you can own 160 acres of land on a homestead. Well, he didn't have $18, but it sounded like a good idea. So he traveled by side door Pullman. Now, I have some friends over here that came down from Detroit on a train. And you know what a Pullman car is, don't you? A Pullman car is a luxury sleeping car that, that uh, people that can afford it can sleep on a train for long trips. But uh, side door Pullman, it was a sarcastic term. For a boxcar that was used to, to transport hogs and cattle that they leave the side doors open on so that the boxcar can air out because of the stench from the manure and the urine. And by the time they get back to the Midwest where they buy more hogs and cattle, the smell is somewhat reduced. That's how he traveled, like a hobo and, and alongside hobos. He gets as far as St. Louis. 
And finally, he can't take the stench anymore. He jumps off the train, gets a job sweeping out floors in a newspaper office. His spare time, Joseph Pulitzer goes to the library and starts reading and improving his English. He's a reporter at that newspaper agency. Then he's the editor. Then he's the co-owner of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, one of the most successful newspapers of the Midwest. He sells his interest, makes a million dollars, gets married, and moves to New York City, where he buys the New York World newspaper. The New York World newspaper had been losing money, $4,000 a month. But Joseph Pulitzer bought it, and within one month after he bought it, it was earning a profit. And by one year after he bought it, it was the second most popular newspaper in the entire United States. And he was angry that the people were not contributing to the Statue of Liberty Fund. He remembered how it was when he came to America from, from Hungary, not being able to speak English, not knowing American customs, where to go, and all the busy traffic around. And he said, people of America, in an editorial, time that America took their place among the great nations of the world. You know, when you think of London, you think of the, the Big Ben clock tower. You think of Windsor Castle. When you think of Paris, you think of the Arc de Triomphe, the Notre Dame Cathedral. When you think of Rome, you think of the Vatican, and you think of the Colosseum and, and the aqueducts and St. Peter's uh, Basilica. When you think of America, you think of hogs, cattle, and railroads. It's time that America embraced art and culture and took its place alongside the other great nations of the world. I'm giving $10,000, and anybody who contributes to the Statue of Liberty Fund, I will print their name in the newspaper along with their amount of contribution and the circumstances of the contribution. Well, everybody likes to see their name in the paper for doing something good, right? So... Now then, the mail trucks start, the mail wagons at that time, start coming in in, in columns to the New York World uh, headquarters. You pull a letter out of a sack. It says, Dear Mr. Pulitzer, my name is Mary Louise O'Malley, and I am six years old. I received a dime from my parents and 25 cents from my grandparents for my birthday. They asked me what I was going to do with it. And I said, I want to give it to the building of the Statue of Liberty. Please accept my 35 cents. Thank you, Mary Louise O'Malley. Pulls another letter from out of the, one of the bags. Dear Mr. Pulitzer, my name is Jacob Kowalski. I am 11 years old. I live in Athens, Ohio. My father visited this arm of the Statue of Liberty when it was displayed in Philadelphia for the centennial celebration. We have a picture of him on our mantle, standing on the balcony of the torch right next to our little terracotta statue of the Statue of Liberty. I went around to every house and door in Athens, Ohio, collected pennies, nickels, and dimes, and I'm sending you the 87 cents that I collected. Please, please build that statue. Well, now then, money started rolling in. There were, there were a lot of envelopes, more than just 87 cents in it enough to finish the, the, the pedestal. So Bartholdi sends for the uh, pieces of the, of the statue in 87 wooden boxes about the size of, of uh, backyard shed buildings. And he 
tells Belabale uh, uh, to come, but Belabale was very ill. He says, I, I'm not well enough to travel. But he gets these crates here. And he also brings a French engineer. The French engineer's name is Gustave Eiffel. He is a pioneer in using steel beams connected together with rivets to form frameworks for, for skyscrapers. He starts putting all the stuff together, and then he gets a visit from a guy named Thomas Alba Edison. And it, Thomas Edison says, I understand you're going to use uh, burning oil for the light in your lighthouse. Oh, that's old-fashioned. You ought to switch to electricity. That's the new modern way to do things. Electricity, what the people call the imprisoned lightning. If you use electricity, I will provide the wiring and the hardware as long as you buy your electricity from me. Done. Okay. Now it's time for the unveiling. October 28, 1886. Ten years and four months after the target date of 1876, July 4th. There's 50,000 people on hand, no women, because they weren't invited. Uh, the women hoop skirts would have taken up too much space, and you would have had much smaller crowd. And so they, they were prohibited. There were, there were two women there, but no one. So that meant that Emma Lazarus was not present. Neither was her poem read at the unveiling. And Delilah whose idea it was he had died the previous year he would never see his dream so he'd never see his dream of the Statue of Liberty erected in, in New York Harbor but who was there the President of the United States Grover Cleveland the same man who had vetoed the idea for funding the statue when he was governor of New York is now president of the United States, and he gratefully accepts this magnificent gift on behalf of a grateful American nation. Emma Lazarus, we don't know if she ever visited. It's not mentioned in any of her diaries or anything. She died 13 months after the statue was un unveiled. In fact, we would probably not even know Emma Lazarus' name today. It wasn't for the fact that a newspaper woman in 1903 was writing a story about the Statue of Liberty, and she went through the archives of the New York World newspaper and found a copy of that poem that she had written. She read the poem, and tears started streaming down her face. She said, This poem should be cast in bronze and bolted permanently to the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty. Uh, the National Library Board did that very thing. They cast the poem in bronze and bolted it to the Statue of Liberty. The poem is entitled The New Colossus, referring back to the inspiration of the Colossus of Rhodes. It goes like this. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here, on our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand grows worldwide 
welcome. Her mild eyes command the airbridge harbor that Twin Cities frame. Keep ancient land your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuge of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Today, three and a half million people visit the, the Statue of Liberty every year. They read that uh, poem on the cast in bronze on the pedestal, and 99% of the people believe that the Statue of Liberty was created to welcome immigrants and visitors. 99% of those people who visit the Statue of Liberty are unaware that it took the collaboration of the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, General William Tecumseh Sherman, the Betsy Ross of the Confederacy, a Jewish poet, yes, female poet, a Jewish immigrant hobo, Eiffel the Joseph Eiffel, the creator of the Eiffel Tower, Thomas Alva Edison, and and little Mary Louise O'Malley, six years old, with her thirty-five cent donation to make this statue happen. Only one percent of the people who visit the Statue of Liberty know that, but now all of you know that because you know the amazing rest of the story. Thank you so much. Happy Independence Day. Can you enjoy? Yes, very good. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, you, you have a question. I'll try to avoid answering. Oh, that's a... a Oh, it's not the Statue of Liberty is on 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 uh, Bedloe Island, but in 1933 they changed the name of Bedloe Island to Liberty Island. Ellis Island is a sister island. It was originally the supply depot to supply Fort Wood. It's really nearby. So I think it's three quarters of a mile away from from um, Liberty Island now. Any other questions that I can avoid? My name's Janine, and I really like the movie National Treasure. And I heard, well, I saw when I could see that in Paris, I think it's Paris, they have a Statue of Liberty there too, a smaller version. Does that have a different name? And is that story? Why did they same, build the same sculpture? Yes, they they, they installed uh, they installed a uh, slightly smaller one there in 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 France, so that people could see what they gave to the Americans. Oh, that's nice. And is it's so what size is that is comparison to ours? Boy, there you go. I think I think it's like maybe half size, so that'd make it like 150 feet tall. I'm not sure on that, but I know it's it's a, a fraction of what the R flat. Our 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 Statue of Liberty, 305 feet from the pedestal, the tip of the torch. That's three. So if you lay that down in Cornhusker Stadium in, in, in Lincoln, they would score a touchdown by two and a half feet on each goal line, which is something the Nebraska Cornhuskers had a hard time doing last year. Cool. Thank you so much.
Are there any other questions? Please enjoy your Independence Day. Be proud of your heritage. Thank you. Hi, I am DJ on Tony's phone, and uh, it's not so much a question, but I have had the privilege of visiting the Statue of Liberty. And I will tell you, for anyone who ever visits and takes a tour of the Statue of Liberty and has gone inside of it, and I have, um, it is a very, very, very moving experience. And it is something that uh, will cause an individual, if you're really a really uh, thinking individual, it will cause an individual to really take perspective and really be uh, challenged to be thankful for who you are and what you are and for all of the displeasures and the, the, the things that any culture, African-Americans or even the Jews who experienced the Holocaust, whatever, uh, it, it, when you're there at the Statue of Liberty, it will cause you, because I know it changed my life and it changed my perspective, that uh, especially that, that, that poem uh, that embraces all the least, the less, the lost, the last, the, the, the forgotten to embrace the liberties. Yes, we've come a long way. But yes, we've even got so much more further to go. That's my comment. Thank you. Oh, thank you for for that. Yes, I, yeah, I, I, I cannot visit the Statue of Liberty or Mount Rushmore, for that matter, without just chills running up and down my spine. Yes, it, it was the greatest American treasure that no one wanted to accept. <laughs> well, did I meet my requirement? Did were you entertained by this education? Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me to speak today. Enjoy your con convention. First of all, um, if possible, I would like um, Donna um, to, to make her way to the, the podium, um, our treasurer. And um, the question I have is, and by the way, this wasn't this a fantastic presentation? Oh, man, I learned more than I ever knew. Oh, that, that was just so great. Oh, you did. Okay. Uh, I didn't take much bribery, I'm sure. Um, the, the question that I've always had, and I was dying to ask you, I um, one of the things that I teach French, I teach foreign languages, and I teach French, and I have this, um, of course, this um, poster of the, the, the Le Tour Eiffel in my classroom, the Eiffel Tower, and I, I do talk to them about the, the Statue of Liberty and the connection. Is there more that you can tell us about Gustav Eiffel, um, you know what I mean as far as um, the, the connection and, um, and why, and, and more about him, um, because I've always wondered more about him and specifically, um, you know, how the, the, this connection came to be. Well, Gustav Eiffel wasn't born in France. He was born in, in the Alsace-Lorraine region, which was controlled by the Germans at the time he was born. He moved to France. And then uh, later became a player in building steel uh, framework. Masonry buildings made out of just stone cannot be built higher than 10 stories. Uh, that's 100 feet tall. After 10 stories, the weight of the stone crushes the bottom stones, 
and the building fell over. So he engineered a way to make it a steel beam skeleton. That way they could have skyscrapers like like 1,000 feet tall in, in New York City and around the world. Je ne parle pas français. But merci pour. Oh. <laughs> so it's my lapse into French. But très bien. But I want to thank you so much, and um, and I just I hope you've all enjoyed this, and you can go home and tell all your family and friends all the um, little factoids and interesting stories behind the Statue of Liberty, and you tell your children your allowance can really make a difference. So. When I was in um, seventh grade uh, in, in junior choir, we sang a song called Give Me Your Tired, Your Poor. And it was supposed to be ins inscribed on the Statue of, Statue of Liberty. And so I'm wondering if that was the poem that you were referring to. That was. And at the risk of making everybody lose their breakfast, I'll, I'll give you a couple of stanzas. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuge of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Yeah, that was the song we sang. Boy, that brings back a lot of memories for me, too. Thank you so much. And Doug, go ahead, please. Uh, I, I just wanted to add a little bit to your story there about uh, Mr. Eichel. Um, the, the, uh, you said he was from Alsace. So was uh, Bertoldi. And so we, we actually spent a year in uh, Kaisersburg, which is near Colmar, and Colmar is where Bertoldi lived and did his work. So that's the, the connection with Eiffel uh, being from Alsace. Ah, uh, see, I learned things from these programs too. <laughs> Any other comments, questions? Don't ask me to dance. I can't dance. No other questions on Zoom. I want to thank you all for coming, and I hope you've got your convention off to a good start, and I wish you the best convention ever from AABT. Goodbye. Have a good day.